Good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone on this beautiful day, and good morning watching online. Well, as Ellison said, we are about to begin a new sermon series. For the next six weeks, we will be looking at how we as Christians can live a steadfast faith in the midst of challenges and all the uncertainties that we are facing. And so to help us with that, we're going to be looking at the book of James. James is one of the most practical books in Scripture that we have. It was written specifically at a time when the early church were dealing with severe trials, with persecution, with division and societal pressure. So sounds familiar, right? So a great book to study together. And over these few weeks, really our hearts and our prayer as a leadership is that our teaching will bring that fresh revelation that grows our faith, inspires us to practically live out a truly committed and authentic Christian walk, whatever our circumstances. Does that sound good? Great. Well, as a pastor, I am often present in situations where there is pain, there's grief, there's also some awkward moments. And so over the years, I have compiled a list of what not to say. Would you like to know my list? <laughs> Take me out for a coffee and I'll tell you more on my list. But for the moment, often those phrases, they're not really helpful. They are the ones that we so easily turn to because we feel that we should say something, but we don't really know what to say. And sometimes they are those cliches. You know, the words that come to mind, probably because we might have verses stuck on our fridge, or we just don't really stop and think about what we are actually saying in the moment. And so out of context, sometimes um, those phrases can be unhelpful. For example, during funerals, I will sometimes hear, remember joy will come in the morning? They are in a better place now. Well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Honestly, they do not bring comfort in the moment. In situations where someone has experienced a wrong or unfair treatment or abuse, reminding them in the midst of their very real pain that we are called to forgive is not really what they want to hear at that moment and can do more harm. Yes, of course, as Christians, we know we are called to forgive. But let's be wise in how we use our words and especially how we quote scripture. Can I hear an amen online? The book of James opens with an all too familiar verse that frankly can be super annoying and is often used out of context. Are you ready? James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Joy? Really? The first practical advice on Christian living that James gives is to have joy in trials. Well, if I was writing to encourage the early church on staying strong in their faith, 
I'm not sure that the first advice I would give would be to tell everyone to have joy in their trials. But if we move past our initial emotional response to these words, if we understand the context, as we look at the why and the how, we can actually see these words not as insensitive or irrational, but rather empowering and life-giving. They teach us how we can live now. And my hope is that this message today is that if you are currently in a situation where you're facing a trial or a challenging circumstance, overwhelmed in crisis, we as a church are here for you. And my prayer is that as we come together through this time today, you will be encouraged. You'll understand a little bit more of how God meets us in our trials and how we can grow in our faith and ultimately how God delivers us in our trials. James, let's look at context first. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. It's widely believed among scholars that the author of the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus. And if that was true, then we know that James was not an early follower of Jesus. In fact, we learn from the gospel that Jesus' brothers and family often took offense at his teachings. And it's likely that James came to believe that Jesus was his Messiah after Jesus' resurrection when he appeared to many over those 40 days. As a sibling to Jesus, can you imagine that just for a moment? Imagine if your half-brother was Jesus, right? Yeah, anyway. <laughs> and as a respected leader in the early church, you would think that James had earned himself the right to mention his heredity and his position. However, from the very beginning, James refers to himself simply as a servant, belonging to God and Jesus Christ. And James is this beautiful example of a transformed life with humility he's writing to a Jewish community scattered in Judea, Samaria, and the Mediterranean. And scattered, most likely, because they were facing persecution in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen because of Stephen's belief in Jesus. And you can read about that in Acts 8. James's readers would have been facing all kinds of trials and difficulties, having to leave their homes and their businesses, being considered outcasts within their own Jewish faith communities, facing persecution from their Jewish authorities, and also having the oppression of the Roman oppressors. So, given this context and background, it's not surprising that James is addressing the suffering and the trials of his people. But what is surprising is how he's addressing it, encouraging them to see their suffering as a joy, or as the message translation translates it, a gift. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. A gift? What does James mean? 
And I think to understand what James means, we have to understand what he does not mean. So he's not suggesting that we embrace all of our happy emotions that we could possibly conjure up when we're facing a challenge. That, that false Christian bravado, yes, everything is great. He's not ordering Christians to enjoy their trials or even suggesting that joy is a trial. Can you imagine? Hooray, I'm so grateful, I just lost my job. <gasps> there, oh, I'm so happy, I feel so blessed. There is a pandemic in the world and Hong Kong is in the fifth wave, yay. No. Rather, James is commending the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding of life, which brings joy into our trials because of our faith. James says, consider it joy. It's a deliberate, careful decision to experience joy even in trouble. And we see this type of joy expressed many times by the believers in the early church. In Acts, Luke tells this story of when Peter and the apostles were arrested by the high priest for healing the sick and performing all sorts of miracles. So they're thrown in jail, and then God sends an angel to release them. And so what do they do? They go back out into the temple courts, and they continue to tell people about Jesus. Now that really upset the Jewish leaders who wanted to then kill them. But they were persuaded, instead of killing them, they would have them beaten and flogged. So Acts tells us that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. It's their faith. It's their understanding of who God was and the hope that they had in Jesus who promised eternal life. It gave them a perspective that allowed them to embrace joy in their trials. You know, as humans, it is inevitable. We will all experience some form of pain and suffering. And when we choose to follow Jesus, we do not suddenly become immune to suffering. Trials are a part of life. And not just one or two, as James tells us, there are trials of many kinds. So as Christians, we should expect it, not be surprised when life gets tough. Perhaps for all of us, we have been surprised how the past three years have been in Hong Kong. And perhaps that has raised some serious questions for us about God, about his character, about his nature. And on one level, this is understandable. And it's okay to have those questions, to hold the doubts. You know, God is big enough. He can hold our questions and our disappointments and frustrations. And I, I encourage you all to go to God, wrestle those things with him. But that doesn't mean, as James is helping us to understand, that there is to consider another perspective. Being a Christian does not cushion us from hardship, and it does not entitle us to an easy life. Maybe some of us in this room can be very quick to blame God, his lack of protection or his lack of love when things go wrong in your life. 
Maybe some of us are actually blaming God for the consequences of maybe what are our own poor choices and habits. And James here is reminding us to be careful with our heart, to be careful with our attitude, and in times of hardship, to hold a better perspective to the challenges we face in life. And we are challenged to have joy because there is spiritual value in our trials. So let's look at why. Why do we face trials? Well, James explains from verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We know gold is a precious and valuable metal, but it doesn't exist in its natural form as we know it. It contains many impurities that need to be removed. And this is done through the refining process. There's a number of different techniques, but one of the techniques is to heat up the gold to almost 1,000 degrees. Now, at the moment, you know, what, what's the temperature? It's like 31, 32, and it's hot outside, right? Imagine a thousand. Anyway, <laughs> the gold melts and the impurities are then able to be separated. Scripture is full of strong imagery that shows God as our heavenly refiner. And so when James is talking about trials, he sees them as God refining our faith, developing perseverance. The Greek word for perseverance is an active, forceful word. It's about endurance, fortitude, steadfastness. For example, I love running. And a couple of years ago, I ran a half marathon. Now, I was used to running 10Ks, but I knew that I'd have to push myself in order to run further at the pace that I wanted to do. So in my training at around 16K, my body is screaming at me to stop. I mean, my joints are aching, you know, I got a stitch, I'm in pain. And I just knew that I had to persevere because I had to build up the stamina that I needed to run longer to ultimately complete that 21K run in the time that I wanted to. So even though it was hard work and it was painful at times, it was worth it. And James is reminding his readers not to give up, endure the trials with joy, because the end result is a spiritual maturity, a spiritual stamina that brings growth and maturity. And we're not talking about a maturity of age. I'm talking about being refined to be more and more Christ-like. And I don't know about you, but when I became a Christian, when I chose to follow Jesus, I didn't want my life to be exactly the same as it was then. I want to be transformed. I want to grow in my faith, in who I am, to be transformed, to be in the likeness of Christ. Christian maturity is when we, we reorder our priorities from pleasing ourselves to pleasing and obeying God when we consciously choose life habits consistent with Jesus' teachings and our Christian values. And that causes us to become more Christ-like. 
James is emphasizing this because he understands how much steadfastness his people will need for the times that they were facing, but not just in that moment, in the seasons ahead. And this is for us. This is for us in our season right now. It has been tough. The reality is we don't know what Hong Kong will be like in a few years' time. We don't know what this world will be like in a few years' time. There's still so much uncertainty. How will our businesses fare? How are our children and our youth going to flourish in this city? Whilst we hold on to a faith that God is ultimately in control, the hardships we have faced up to this point is also working to strengthen us to mature us as God's church, to be the church we are called to be at this time. And as we are strengthened, we will be able to be his hands and his feet, no matter what we face in the future. And this is our heart as a leadership of the vine. We want you to be refined now in whatever you are going through so that you personally and we as a church can be fit for purpose in the season ahead of us, no matter what it is. And the Apostle Paul, we know that he himself faced many trials and he echoes the words of James as he sits under house arrest awaiting trial in Rome. Paul says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Trials, they give us that, that greater sensitivity to other people, an ability to understand to provide practical help to those around us, causes us to talk more and depend more on God. They help us appreciate and find comfort in his presence. What about a time in your own life where through persevering through a difficult situation you grew in fortitude, in courage, in strength of character, how did God sustain you? How's God sustaining you now? When I was, when I first found out I was pregnant, Richard and I were ecstatic, this is my husband here. And we've been married for 12 years then. We've actually been married for like 30 years. This is our 30th uh, years of being married this year. Yay! So 12 years in, yeah, that, that deserves an applause for Richard. We'd been married for 12 years in, and we felt it was the right thing to start a family. And so when I found out I was pregnant for the first time, we were just gushing with so much excitement and anticipation as we, uh, we went to our first scan, you know, um, so excited about what we would see, um, only to be told that there was a problem and so what then followed was a number of weeks of uncertainty and desperate prayers as we faced the, the real reality that we, I could miscarry. And of course, I'm going to pray. So 
So I prayed fervently. You know, I, I quoted every conceivable scripture verse that I could think of just to remind God who he was and what he could do, just in case he needed reminding. And of course, you know, I confessed of all my bad things and, you know, repented of things that maybe I didn't even know about. Um, I wanted to make sure that I covered everything, bargained, pleaded, praised, was thankful, you name it, I did it, convinced that God would save our baby. But sadly, we lost our baby. The second time I got pregnant, we were a little bit subdued in our excitement, at the same time convinced that this time everything would be okay. Sadly, we lost our second baby. The third time I got pregnant, I knew I'd built up a harder exterior around myself. I didn't really know how to pray, what to pray, even if I wanted to pray. All I knew was that God had shown us great comfort and love in many different ways in those past painful few years, even though I didn't understand why. But sadly, we lost our third baby. In my fourth pregnancy, I was exhausted, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. I had always thought that I loved God, that Jesus was everything to me, and that I would happily surrender my life to follow him, whatever that meant. But the reality was, over the years of experiencing the emotional and the physical trauma of multiple miscarriages, my faith was challenged. And I remember sitting on my bed, pregnant for the fourth time, feeling really unwell, and tears pouring down my face as I found myself asking God some serious questions. Did I blame God for the babies I had lost? Did I still really love God? But in that moment, as I reflected on the past couple of years, I knew that God was not to blame. Richard and I had known his love. We had known his closeness, his presence in the midst of some very dark times. Yes, I absolutely loved him. And my love was not conditional. And even though it hadn't been easy, I could see how I had grown in my love and dependency on God. I would not stop. I could not stop loving him, even if we never had a child. The realization of how much I was loved, how much Jesus had suffered for me so that I could be free, and the hope that I had in life after death where I would see my babies again, that stirred within me a joy, a joy that certainly did not make sense was absolutely not rational. And a flood of peace came over me, and I knew then at that time, it would be okay. It would be okay even if I lost this fourth baby. I didn't miscarry, and Richard and I became parents to Bella and later to Benjamin. My story is of trusting God in suffering, allowing him to refine me in the process. How do we protect ourselves against our faith becoming stagnant or even losing our faith in the midst of our trials and suffering? 
Thankfully, the practical James tells us, the readers, and us how. In verse 1, chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Sounds quite simple, right? We ask God to help us, and he will. James is showing us that to lack wisdom is to lack an understanding of how to live righteously in our challenging situations. That if we come to God, he will, without fail, without judgment, provide us with what we need to remain steadfast. The Greek word that James uses for wisdom is Sophia. And within the Greco-Roman world, seeking wisdom was all about gaining knowledge, the accumulation of information. The more information you had, the more intellectual you were, the more important you were. Sounds a bit like Hong Kong at times, right? We feel that we need to prove our worth through our studies, the schools that we went to, the schools that our children go to, the letters after our name. But in contrast, James is writing to a Jewish community they're a community of believers with a very different understanding and concept of wisdom. And the author, Ralph Martin, puts it this way. For the Jewish mind, wisdom meant practical righteousness in everyday living. It is wisdom that surpasses earthly knowledge and information. It begins with a healthy reverence for God. It is seeing the world in God's perspective. God shows us how to live. He shows us how to think, how to act, how to love. So our attitude as we go to God to help should be that he is the ultimate source of real direction and truth. It is an attitude of prayer, dependency, and humility. And there is no room for indecisiveness. James gives us a condition to meet in order to receive that wisdom in our trials. And that condition is faith. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, But when you ask, you must believe and do not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable, in all they do. This is critical for us today. If we're going to live out our faith with joy in the midst of hardship, we have to grasp this truth. The imagery is very clear. The words are strong and direct. We can't ask for help wanting our way and God's way, or wanting to know what God says but reserving ourselves the right to decide whether we will obey or not. And for some of us, this is exactly what we do. Life is tough. You just got made redundant, and you're thinking of leaving Hong Kong because you're worried you will not find work. But you love Hong Kong. Your family is here. Your friends are here. You attend the Vine. You've sought wise counsel, you've prayed about it a hundred times, you even have a job interview next week here in Hong Kong, but 
you are super anxious. You're also angry that you've lost your job in the first place because you love that job. And you're beginning to wonder, is God really there? Does he not understand that you need to work to pay the rent, to pay the food? Does God even care? And all these thoughts tossing backwards and forwards, and that affects your trust in God. So we need to come to God to believe that he will meet us. He will give us what we need to endure. And when we endure, well, what comes next? We've learned the what, the why, the how. What then? Well, James tells us, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Sounds familiar. It's the language that James is using that echoes Jesus in his teaching on the Beatitudes. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Greek word used for crown was the word given to a wreath that was placed on the head of an athlete or a military honor, and it afforded great honor. I don't know about you, but I want to be known for my joy in the midst of hardship because I know that God will help me to get through the trials as I trust him. I know that I will grow in my faith because of my trials and ultimately, I will receive a reward in heaven for my faithfulness. How about you? What does that look like for you? And as the band comes now, I wanted to create a bit of space in our response to this message as I was praying about what does it mean for us as Divine Church here and for those watching online? How can we personally respond to this? Where are we in the midst of our trials? Do we need a change in perspective? Are we being tossed? back and forth through our indecisiveness? Do we truly trust that God is with us even in the midst of everything that is happening and that we are facing right now? And so, there'll be a couple of ways that we will create space for us to respond. Firstly, Maybe this is a message that has spoken to you personally and you feel that you really do need prayer to have a change in perspective, to be renewed in your courage and your hope and your trust once again. And in a moment, as the band comes on, we will be listening to the band play and you I'll encourage us to stand. We'll open up our hands. And if you're watching online, there's also an opportunity for you to respond as well. And as you open up your hand, you are saying that you would like somebody to pray for you. And as we have been doing so many times here as a, as a faith, community of faith, if you see somebody with their hands open, then I encourage you to go to them and ask 
if you could pray with them. There's a second response as well for maybe for some of us here. And I, I, I sense strongly that for many of us, we really struggle with this being tossed backwards and forwards. And you know in your head that God is with you, but, and there's a massive but. And what I want you to do, if you feel that you need once again to take that step of courage, to say, okay, I am gonna trust God. I'm gonna ask for his help and then I'm gonna trust that he's gonna help me. I wanna invite you to come and just come to the cross. Write down that trial that you are facing. It's a relationship, broken. It's job, it's security unsure. It's health. It's finances. It's being misunderstood. It's being judged. It's feeling like you don't fit in. You're questioning who you are, even your identity. It's a real trial that you're facing and you're suffering. I want you to write it down. I want you to take it in a symbolic act where you are saying, I trust God with this. And then I want you to put it at the cross. Symbolic reminder that our God is with us. He trusts, we trust Him to be with us in all of our challenges, in all of our trials. Would you stand with me? the band will play for a period of time. This is a time for you to either put out your hands and if you see somebody with their hands open, then I encourage you go and pray with them. This is what we do, church. This is what we do as a community of faith. And I encourage you if you're struggling and you know it, because right now you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this. But I encourage you to come forward and take that act of faith Write that trial on that piece of paper and leave it at the cross. And as you go back to your seat, you know symbolically you've chosen to once again trust God with the trial and the challenge you are facing. Let's do that now, church.